Thank you, Alex and Bailey, for uh, blessing us with that beautiful song. Um, a song that ties in perfectly with sloth. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Proverbs 24, verses 30-34. And as you're turning there, if in uh, Grimm's fairy tale, which is a fitting name for them, they're rather grim, uh, there's a fairy tale called Little Red Cap, or more famously known as Little Red Riding Hood. There's a, and in this fairy tale, there's an ominous line that's always stood out to me, and it goes a little like this. When Little Red Cap entered the woods, a wolf came up to her. She did not know what a wicked animal he was, and she was not afraid of him. Little Red Cap, Little Red Riding Hood, was in mortal danger, yet she had no idea. There she was, uh, utterly oblivious to the wolf's true desire, which was to devour her. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of our sin. That like the wolf, our sin often conceals its truest desires, oftentimes dressing itself up as the very thing that we think that we're looking for, inviting us to join it for tea and crumpets, to pull up a chair, to get comfortable and to get closer, to ignore the warning signs, the big ears, the big eyes, the big hands, and the big mouth, until at last we realize, like Little Red Cap, that that's not our grandmother at all. That's a wolf and a moo-moo. And soon the snap, soon the trap will snap shut, and the hook will catch deep, and the wolf will seek to devour. John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or it be killing you. Which is why we've entitled this sermon series, The Battles Before Us. Because we are seeking to unmask the wolves, the dogs, to see our sin, to expose the glittering vices and dispositions of our hearts that so easily entangle and deceive us along this journey of faith. Sins that seek to devour us, that seek to rob from us the joy, the life, and the peace that we were created for. And in Christ, have, we have been redeemed to walk in. And so far in this series, we've looked at the sins of pride, of worry, and unbelief, greed, and envy. And tonight we come to the sin of sloth. And when we think about sloth, we think about an animal that lives up in a tree all day. We think of inactivity or laziness or lack of motion or energy. And let's face it, we are busy people living in a busy area, going to a busy church. And the temptation for us is to think and to believe that of all the sins, sloth poses us the least threat. And this, perhaps, makes sloth the most dangerous of them all. Because in not knowing what sloth truly is, we allow it 
to sink its teeth deeper and deeper into our hearts. So what then is law? Because the early church, Father Evagrius, considered sloth to be the most oppressive of all the demons. The Greek word he used to convey the idea of sloth was the word acedia, which is just two Greek words smashed together. A meaning absence, and cedos or cedia meaning care. So what sloth ultimately is, is a lack of care. So to give us a working definition, sloth is an inattentiveness to the responsibilities, tasks, and gifts that God has given us. And we see that in the book of Proverbs, a book that contains a number of characters like Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, the scoffer, the righteous, the fool, the simple. And then there's this really, really tragic character and sometimes comedic character named the sluggard. And as we examine this character, we will flip and flick our way around the Proverbs. But I'd like for us to root ourselves in Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34, as we consider three things about the sluggard. The tragedy of the sluggard, the lie of the sluggard, and the intentional hope of the wise. So hear now the word of the Lord from Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Thus far, God's word. Our first point tonight is the tragedy of the sluggard, which is the devastation that we find in his field. For as we see walls lying in ruin, the thorns and the nettles, what's clear is that this field was meant for so much more. Sloth, like all other sins, is a denial of who and what God made us to be. That's the great tragedy of it all. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates humanity, places them in the garden, and he gives them a job. He gives them a purpose. He gives them work to do. He gives them a mission and an objective to work and to keep the garden and to fill the earth and to subdue it. To not just work and frolic about within the, the, the boundaries of Eden, but to take dominion by expounding its boundaries until one day Eden filled the whole earth. See, brothers and sisters, we were created to live lives filled with purpose, significance, and meaning. That we were created by our Creator to work, to labor, to keep, and to tend, to pour ourselves, our energy, and our lives out for a meaningful endeavor. Yet even into the fabric of, the, of that great endeavor, our God blesses his creation with the Sabbath, 
a day of real and genuine rest, woven into the very fabric of creation, a day set apart to worship and to glory in our Creator. That in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that we were hardwired by our Creator to both work for God and to rest in God. That in order to work well, we need to rest well. And to rest well, we need to work well. Both are necessary as we embark upon this great and glorious calling that God has for us. Yet as Genesis 3 tells us, sin enters into the world and it breaks and it warps everything it touches. Rather than the relationship between work and rest being harmoniously woven together, sin has a way of making them adversaries. And we see this adversarial relationship between work and rest in the life of the sluggard. For the sluggard desires the rest of Eden without the work of Eden. And we see that quite clearly in our passage this evening. In verse 30, we find Solomon, or the man of wisdom, out for a walk. When he happens by a field. And that field and the state of it gets him thinking and reflecting about life and wisdom. For in those days your field was how you put food on your table. It's what kept you and your family's bellies full. For most, it was their place of business, industry, and work. And in Genesis 12 and following, God makes a promise to Abram and to his offspring that he would give them a land of promise. Then in the books of of, of Exodus, the Lord leads his people out of the land of bondage, out of the land of slavery, in order to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And in the book of Joshua, that promise is finally realized as the people of God enter into and possess this promised land. And that land is then divided up amongst the various tribes and from there the various families. For the land was their inheritance, a gift given to them by God to bless them as they sought to steward this land by working it and tending it, by filling it and subduing it. Yet this man has taken his field, he's taken his birthright, and he's squandered it. Rather than filling and subduing the earth, the earth now fills and subdues him. His life, like his field, is overgrown. It's covered up and broken down. And despite what this field, this vineyard once was, what it once was able to produce, now all his field can produce is thorns and nettles. And his stone wall, the wall that would have been built to protect and guard his field from thieves and robbers and ne'er do wells and from the trampling feet of wayward cattle, has been dismantled stone by stone, brick by brick. So not only is this field left untended and unworked, it's left utterly unguarded and unprotected. And friends, the whole point of the Proverbs and our text is to consider. And to think 
and to reflect upon our own lives, the state of our own field, to reflect upon the various callings and responsibilities that God has called us to. Things like being a disciple of Jesus, a brother or a sister in Christ, a child, a sibling, a friend, a spouse, a parent or a grandparent, a boss or an employee, an elder, a deacon, a member of a church, a student or a teacher or a neighbor. We each have various roles, various callings and responsibilities that God has placed upon our lives. Callings and responsibilities that God has given us to steward and to tend to and to care for and to be faithful with. For you are living your life in the field that your God has given you for his kingdom and for his glory. So let's ask ourselves the hard question. What's our field looking like? Because to care for and tend our field, we need to know our field. We need to know its soil. We need to know what's growing where. We need to know where the walls are and what state that they're in. We need to know where our field needs careful and precise, tending, and cultivating. But we also need to know where only a bush hog will do. And friends, the truth is, we will be working on this field our whole lives. To this side of glory, our labors in this field will never cease. But remember, we're not working in the field alone. We've been given the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom our Savior sent to help us in this endeavor. We also have one another as the thorns and the nettles spring up and our walls tumble and crumble. But friends, it is the everydayness of the Christian life that can often discourage and overwhelm us the most. Because there always seems to be weeds to pull. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always bumping up against our walls. So we're needing to reinforce and to fix them. There are storms and droughts that come. And on top of that, one season comes after another, comes after another, comes after another. And while weeds, thorns, and nettles sprout voluntarily, the produce of the harvest typically arrives at the intersection of divine blessing and the intentional plowing and planting of the seeds of the harvest. And brothers and sisters, when we're stuck weeding in the cornfield of our lives. And the stalks seem to just be closing in on top of us. It's easy to lose sight of the big picture of what God is doing. And in those moments, sloth is close at hand. For sloth tempts us to abandon our field altogether and to go do something, anything else. And notice that's what the sluggard is doing in this passage. He's nowhere to be found. His presence is never felt, only his absence. But sloth doesn't just tempt us to check out, to abandon our post, but it also tempts us to self-justify. And here's what I mean by that. Sloth turns us into specialists so that we care for and tend to only those parts of our field that we're really, really good at or that we really, really enjoy. 
that our energy, our focus, our passion is to keep those places and spaces well maintained down to the finest of details. Yet in our obsession with one corner of our field, we often leave the rest of it untended. And friends, we live in a very specialized and specializing world. Our culture encourages us to find our niche, to find our place, and to focus all of our energy, all of our efforts on that thing and that thing only. But the truth is, our God calls us to do a number of really hard things all at the same time. Each of us have multiple plates that we're trying to keep spinning, yet he's called us to be his disciples. Which means every square inch, every plate of our lives is under his authority and governed by his word. That our relationship with Christ affects how we go about doing the various responsibilities and roles that God has given and blessed our lives with. From singleness to marriage, parent to child, boss to employee, church officer to layperson, teacher to student, along with so many other things. Each of us have various and varying responsibilities and roles that God has placed upon our lives. And there is important and meaningful work to be done in all of them. But there will also be toil. There will also be labor. There will also be struggles and difficulties that arise. And when things get messy, complicated, and difficult in one part of our field, we can often find ourselves veering and steering ourselves toward those places and spaces that come a bit more easily for us. Because sloth can be manifested in both a lack of activity, but also in a flurry of it. For the sloth isn't always doing nothing. Sometimes the sloth is so busy that he or she never gets around to what's actually important. We busy ourselves with those things that we're really, really good at. Because sometimes it's easier to go to work. It's easier to work on the yard, to work on the house, to work on our cars than it is to work on our marriage than it is to disciple our kids or to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's far simpler and far less messy to concentrate on growing the bank account or the 401k than to endeavor by the means of grace to grow spiritually, to grow in grace and truth and faith. We may deem this to be playing to our strengths. Why work harder when you can work smarter? But are we in reality shirking responsibility and roles that God has given us? Friends, sloth is an inattentiveness to the responsibilities and tasks that God has laid before us. Those things he has given us to do. And whether those tasks, those responsibilities, our callings come easy to us or they don't, it matters little. Because whether they be easy or hard, we are called by our God to trust him and to obey. For he is the Lord over all things. So knowing what God has called us to do, 
by God's grace, we therefore need to be faithful in our plotting, in taking one step after another after another. For this is the field. This is the light. This is the race that the Lord our God has put before us. Which leads us to our second point, the lie and the sluggard. We see it in verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You see, the slugger desires the rest of Eden without doing the work that was in Eden. His chief desire, his greatest pursuit is just a little more sleep. His desire is for his own comfort and ease, making him apathetic toward the call and purpose that God had placed upon his life. In his delicious drowsiness, he can't be bothered or even enticed by the great and glorious purposes of his God. So he becomes infatuated with things that don't matter and apathetic toward things that actually do. So when it comes time to tend his field, he can't be bothered to get up out of bed. For as Proverbs twenty six fourteen tells us, as a door on the hinges... As a door on its hinges, so does a slu- so a sluggard is on his bed. What this is is a reflection upon the life of the sluggard, a life subdued by the sin and lie of sloth, a sin where we where he sees the task before him, he sees the work that needs to be done, and instead of putting his hand to the plow, he instead seeks the warmth, comfort and ease of his bed. The sluggard's favorite day then is always tomorrow, filling his day to overflowing with excuses. And as Proverbs twenty-two thirteen tells us, the sluggard cries, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Well, there's no lion. The sluggard is always full of all kinds of outlandish excuses, excuses that enable him to remain indoors while work remains to be done. While there's no lion, there is certainly a slothful wolf inside, chaining and enslaving and even hinging him to his own bed, devouring him with some reason, some extenuating circumstance to keep him from the purposes and responsibilities that, the, that God has placed on his life. You see, the lie of the sluggard can keep him from ever beginning his labors, Proverbs 6, 9 asks, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? When will you begin to do what God has called you to do? And to be fair, the hardest step is often the first. And apart from the work of Christ and the Spirit, it can, easy, it can be easy to become overwhelmed at the who and the what God has called us to be. But for the sluggard, even if he does take the first step, The sluggard's lie can also keep him from ever finishing anything and leaving things left undone. As Proverbs 19.24 says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. He begins things with the best of intentions, but rather than being driven by faithful diligence and duty, He is instead driven by impulse, by feelings and emotions, and therefore quickly surrenders when things give the least bit of resistance. And consider our passage this evening. How many times had our slugger thought to himself, today is the day to take back my field? 
to rid it of all those thorns and nettles. Perhaps there were times he got, even got the bush hog out and the weed whacker, only to quit a little while in. See, the sluggard's lie will also keep us from facing things, too. Excuses like lions being in the street will keep the slug, sluggard tucked precariously in his bed. So my question for us is where then do you see the sluggard's lies at work in your own life? Are there places in your life, in your field, that you aren't willing to face? Or the prospect of beginning to deal with those things is almost overwhelming. Or perhaps there's something that you've started to work on so many times, but quickly give up because it's just too much work. Maybe it's something with your marriage, your parenting, your walk with the Lord, your relationship with your parents. Maybe it's how you cope with having a bad day. Maybe it's your anger, your need for control or to be right. Maybe it's a grief, a sorrow, a tragedy that's never been properly lamented. Maybe it's an addiction to your phone, drugs, alcohol, or or pornography. Or maybe it's resentment that you've given safe harbor to for far too long. And now it's festered into your heart towards someone else, towards your parents or your spouse or your kids or maybe even yourself. Perhaps there are questions or conversations that you've been avoiding for years. And the sluggard's lie is to avoid those things, to allow those things to continue lazing about in the darkness. And what they really need is the marvelous light to shine, to expose the darkness, so that with the Spirit's help, we can rip the thorns and nettles out by the roots. That we can begin to rebuild the walls that have been torn down. Which brings us to our third point, the intentional hope of the wise. How do we faithfully and wisely live this life? How do we faithfully and wisely work our field and do what God has called us to do? Well, friends, we must first look to Jesus. For we were created by our intentional God with great intention and for a wondrous purpose Yet where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior, succeeds. You see, Jesus came into the world for a purpose. As Luke 19.10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or John 6.38-40, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, our Savior, was sent into this world for a great and glorious purpose, to redeem slothful and sluggardly sinners like you and like me. And here's the thing. He devoted his life and ministry to this purpose. He gave himself up entirely towards this end. 
Yet in living this purpose out, Jesus doesn't become a workaholic. No, his life was marked by a profoundly beautiful harmony of work and rest. Times of action and times of worship and reflection. You see, people had all kinds of plans for Jesus. And we see that throughout the Gospels. But Jesus knew his purpose and never got distracted from it. Living the intentional and purposeful and sinless life that we were created for. That his life, that his field was perfectly tended and cared for. All the way out to the the very edges. So that as he went to and was nailed to the cross, he took upon himself our sin, our shame, our sloth, and he gave to us his righteousness. So that our sin, our shame, has no more hold. It has no more claim on us. For we have been declared righteous from now and forevermore. Not based on our merits, but on account of his. You see, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can save, who can redeem, who can ransom us with the precious, blood, precious price of his own blood. But his precious blood doesn't just save us from our sin, but it has saved us and redeemed us to something. As Paul says, we are now Christ's ambassadors bringing with us the good news of the gospel of God's glorious kingdom, that as we live our lives, that anywhere and everywhere we go, as we work our jobs, as we raise our families, as we change diapers, as we clean dishes, as we take out the trash, we are to be lights shining in the darkness. For in Christ we have been redeemed and restored to a life of great and glorious purpose. That rather than a life uh, full of empty pursuits and meaningless vanity, in Christ we have discovered the pearl of greatest consequence. That in a world looking for and obsessed with love, in Christ we have discovered a steadfast and sure love that is better than life itself, a love that will never, ever let us go. That in a world where the accomplishments and lives of the rich, powerful, and famous will soon be forgotten, in Christ our names are written in the book of life. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, brothers and sisters, we have an intentional God who redeems us into a purposeful and meaningful life. And though the world may forget you and your plotting faithfulness, but in Christ... Yours is a name written down for all of eternity, past and future. And though this world forget you, in Christ we can be assured that eternity never will. So to conclude, brothers and sisters, let us, by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, keep faithfully plotting in the field that God has given us.
Let us continue to take up the plow, to fire up the bush hog and rip the weeds of sin out by the roots. Let us together build back the walls and tend the soil of our hearts. And as we work and as we labor, we are confident that our labor is not in vain. For our hope, for our joy, for our delight and for our comfort is not in our labor, but in the finished work of Christ. And that he who began a good work in us will bring that work to its completion. Knowing that our Savior Jesus ever lifts thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. Resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face. Keep me ever trusting, resting. Fill me with thy grace, if you would pray with me. Great and glorious God, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God of wondrous intentionality and a God of purpose. Father, we thank you and we praise you that through Christ we have been redeemed from the pit, that we have been redeemed out of slavery, that we have been brought into a life of significant purpose and meaning, all because of your kingdom and for your glory. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen.